A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. I'm John Patrick Higgins. And these are my strange stories. Why not relax, kick off your shoes, and enjoy the peculiar worlds inside my head? Inside John Patrick Higgins. No one remembers the gate crasher's name. In 1976, Michael Stipe, not yet the singer of REM, stayed up all night listening to Patti Smith's debut album, Horses. He ate a very large bowl of cherries while he did so. By morning, he felt extremely unwell, but he was changed forever. A decade later, Paul Reverb, not yet much of anything, listened to The Poison Boyfriend by Scottish singer Momus and flamed into being. At 18 and freshly reinvented, Paul crashed a house party, the first time he had ever done so, armed with a four-pack of Tesco's own brand Norseman Lager and the lyrics to Momus's The Gatecrasher in his head as a workable map of how to do it. He shows up at the party in a pair of dark glasses his grandfather wore in the war. That was how the song began. It was immediately problematic. Paul's grandfather hadn't been in the war. Paul's grandfather had been Irish, and the Irish didn't have a war. They had an emergency. And in Ireland, an emergency was no reason to make a big fuss about nothing. His grandfather did have some sunglasses. He'd worn them on a visit during the long, hot summer of 1976. He had bought them from a man in the park who was selling ice-cold cans of Coke for a pound. The sunglasses were red and heart-shaped and modelled after the ones Sue Lyon wore in the Lita, something that Paul's grandfather probably didn't know, but he thought the sunglasses were hilarious anyway. He wore them every day as he sat in the garden with his shirt off listening to Sing Something Simple on the transistor radio. The sound of Paul's 1976 had not been punk or disco, but a close harmony version of cherry pink and apple blossom white against the gentle thrum of ladybird's wings. The old man's white belly was swollen and grey hair scumbled his chest, and to young Paul sat at his feet all summer, it was like an alpine forest atop a snowy slope. Paul loved his grandad and his grandad loved him, but neither could understand a word the other said, 
which they both found frustrating and sad. A few years later, Paul had done a reading at his grandfather's funeral in a small Irish church where the ancient and tiny congregation might have been hobbits. Paul was 16 and his high, fluting English voice sounded like the local magistrate giving the law to the assembled peasantry. Paul had not liked the feeling, but he had enjoyed being the tallest person in the room. The sunglasses were out, but Paul was wearing quiet ticks of eyeliner to the party, which he imagined made him look dangerous. Having slipped into the house by the back entrance, he hid the cans of Norseman behind the sofa and scouted around for some better booze. His own beer was contingency stock. In the song, the titular gatecrasher looks about the party for something to eat and is disappointed by the spread. But that was a party in cosmopolitan London, or possibly Edinburgh, and the canapes were just laid on. Out in the country, there was no food. Not a pickled onion or a sausage on a stick. Just a table laden with multi-packs of McEwans, John Smiths and Fosters. Paul helped himself to a warm John Smiths and retreated to the sofa to look interesting. He achieved this by whipping out his notebook and scratching in a few thoughts before passionately scurrying through them. He held his head in his hands as though it were loose and about to wobble off the plinth of his neck. He looked slyly about to see if this was exciting anyone. After all, what could be more interesting than a young, thin man wrestling with his art? It was the cornerstone of Western culture and had been since the late 19th century. Nobody was looking. Where were the girls in Bolshevik black that Momus had promised? Whither a trier of vampire brides busily inventing his mythos as they writhed at his feet? There were no aggressively blunt fringes at this party, nothing approaching a Louise Brooks bob or a Juliet Greco boiler suit. Even Lennon's specks were thin on the ground. Paul had heard about the party at college, sat at the back of his sociology A-level, and he assumed that someone he knew would be in attendance. But there was no one. This was a celebration of the Jeunesse Dorée of the south of England, which is why he had had to get a train out of town and walk a mile and a half to get here, and why their driveway was littered with Volkswagen Beetles and Minis, most of which had I've seen the lions at Longleat stickers in the back window. These were the scions of middle-class families who had packed a picnic and went out and about the great green places of old England. They probably gave each other National Trust bookmarks for Christmas and could fold maps from birth. Paul had never seen the lions at Longleat. Paul's family didn't go to Longleat or Bewley or the Duxford Air Museum. Paul's family holidays were strictly contained in a two-week block at the height of summer and were entered into grudgingly like a dental appointment you couldn't get out of. It was the only time Paul ever saw his parents drunk and they were drunk all day, every day, for the duration of the fortnight. Paul had been 17 on their last holiday and functionally of age, especially in Torremolinos, so he had been pressed into service as his parents' minder, escorting them from bar to bar where they got sloppy drunk on bright sticky cocktails resting on bright sticky counters. His parents didn't drink for the rest of the year, so the holiday became invested with the imaginary rock and roll lifestyle they almost certainly wouldn't have enjoyed if Paul hadn't come along when they were both 18. This was a tottering, tacky-elbowed bacchanal from start to finish, 
and saw Paul trotting behind his mother and carrying her shoes. Paul was certain his parents were having sex most nights, and one morning he found his mother's tights in the hallway outside their room. When he knocked on the door, she opened it a crack and took the tights without looking up, but Paul could see that her makeup from the night before had moved about an inch to the left. In the background, he could hear the sound of his father being sick, so he closed the door and went back to his own room and sat on the balcony, looking out at the distant sea and listening to House Tornado by throwing muses on his Walkman. When he came back into the room, he found a note under the door. We tried to knock you up, but no answer. We're going back to Ricky's bar. Your mum won a bottle of tequila for collecting the most belts from the crowd last night. Mum and Dad, kiss. Paul imagined that no one at the party had been drunk in Tomrelinos with their parents. They probably sipped their first champagne at a cousin's christening when they were seven. Paul had been offered the froth of his uncle's party seven at his cousin Christina's wedding and everybody had laughed when he had choked on it. It was a summer party and everybody except Paul was wearing a lot of white. Cap sleeves revealed tanned, hairless arms and suspiciously manicured holes at the knees of white jeans revealed tanned and hairless legs. The boys had highlights in their hair and wore leather bands at their wrists or coral necklaces at their throats. The girls had big hair, big earrings, red lips and long, healthy teeth. They were all dancing to Prince and In Excess and Transvision Vamp and they were enjoying themselves. Hair was tossed with some abandon. Paul half knew a couple of them from smoking breaks outside the drama block. All actresses smoked. And breaking protocol, he offered a couple of shy waves. The girls were pleasant but distant, slightly bemused that Paul was there, as though there had been a category error they couldn't quite process. Paul felt as strange and lonely as a pillar box on the moon. All right, mate said a large, healthy-looking boy with crinkly blonde curtains. His teeth could have bitten through plate steel, and they were now smiling at Paul, though his eyes were doing something quite different. You having a good time, mate? Sitting there on your own? Yeah, said Paul, smiling back. What's that, mate? said the boy, miming that he couldn't hear. Killing Joke's 80s was playing and the crowd were chanting along with it, stamping their feet instead of dancing, which was somehow a fair indication they'd been to public school. I'm having a good time, yeah, said Paul. Yeah, looks like it. Sat here on your own like a spare prick. Who invited you? Ah, gatecrasher meets gatekeeper. There was nothing in the Momus song about this. The gatecrasher in the song, a gossamer-veiled Momus, was loose and loose on the streets of North London. He was an exciting figure, inviting sexual speculation and scaring the girls with his Byronic machismo. When he steals vodka, the victims merely stop and stare. When he drifts off into melancholy reverie, he thinks about big things, like Hitler or an Italian girl he broke the heart of. There was nothing about being turfed out of a gathering by a rugby player in a Fat Willie Surf Shack t-shirt. Paul decided to stand up and renegotiate the power play. He had nothing to lose. 
The last train back to town had already gone and it was a ten-mile walk home along twisting, lightless country roads. It was a death sentence. If he couldn't contrive to stay the night, he would die. So he would stand up and gently reason with this man who had, he now noticed, a shark's tooth pendant at his throat. Paul imagined he took it off for the scrum. This would be easy, thought Paul. He would use his powers of persuasion. If he'd get his mother to leave a Spanish bar before the karaoke started, he could reason with anyone. Paul pushed deep into the sofa and levered himself into the vertical, but the rugby player, a practised bully, waited for the precise moment that Paul shifted his weight from his heel to the ball of his foot and pushed him back into his seat with no effort. Paul became annoyed. Who the fuck are you? Why do you care who I know at this shitty fucking party? Because, mate, said the boy, it's my shitty fucking party, and I don't remember inviting you. What are you meant to be, anyway? Bella Lugosi's dead. Paul ignored the nonsensical comment. It's actually a really good party, he said. Thanks. Can I stay? No, of course you can't. Fuck off. But the train's gone. Thought you'd have a broomstick outside, said the boy, and there was a chorus of boorish laughter behind him. Paul was wearing mainly black clothes... His hair had been artfully teased into the vertical, but he was not a goth, and he was not having it. It was an indignity too far. He played it cool. You seem to be under misapprehension, mate. I'm not a goth. What are you, then? Paul jerked his knee up and pushed the sole of his foot flat into the boy's groin. The boy collapsed unhurriedly as though experiencing a slow puncture. He folded like origami, his face white and creased like a page of foolscap. Paul leapt to his feet and bellowed, I'm a weirdo, mate! And snatching up his cans of Norsemen, made it to the door before any of the drunken party-goers could react. He hid in a bush in the darkness of the garden, his bladder pressing hard against the waistband of his jeans as a howling troop of rugby players scoured the dark paths leading out into fields or the narrow tree-canopied roads. As they slowly, disconsolately drifted back into the house, their bloodlust still fizzing, Paul disentangled himself from his hiding place and, now certain of safety, let out with a series of involuntary gasps of pleasure a high, foaming arc of piss over a Volkswagen. There was a daisy sticker on the bonnet of the car, and he pressed the flow down hard to try and bobble the cartoon flower, but it proved resilient. He pulled a can of Norseman from the pack ring and cracked it open. It was a thin brew with top notes of yeast, but at least it was beer, and it was a companion for the long walk home. He started to sing The Gatecrasher as he marched along, clinging to the mulchy gutters of the black road his senses alive to the threat of imminent death. He was nothing like the protagonist of the song, he decided, and it would be impossible to be like the protagonist of the song while he still lived in the middle of nowhere, with a compromised public transport infrastructure and a dearth of finger foods. One day he would move to the city and tell nobody what he did for a living. He would cultivate a mystique and he would sleep with fascinated women of every creed and colour. 
who had listened to Eric Sarty in a converted warehouse apartment, eat food he had never heard of, drink thick and complicated black coffee, and have a comb made of bone and all the Neu albums on vinyl. He would go to dinner parties and see challenging dance pieces and befriend a guy who sold the big issue. Until then, he had five more cans of Norseman lager and a long walk home on a moonless night. He began to whistle. Inside John Patrick Higgins was brought to you by the colour blue and the letter G. Written and performed by John Patrick Higgins, it was produced and edited by Graham Watson.